from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER podcast. Posons-nous sérieusement la question de l'avenir que nous voulons et ayons tous ensemble le courage de le construire. Für uns in Deutschland ist das Bekenntnis zum vereinten Europa Teil unserer Staatsräson. A strong united Europe is a necessity for the world because an integrated Europe remains vital to our international order. This is the moment for Europe to lead the way towards a new vitality. Hello and welcome to the latest podcast from the Center for European Reform. I'm Ian Bond, the CER's Foreign Policy Director, and it's a little over a year and a half since Russia launched a full-scale invasion of Ukraine. A lot has happened in that time, much of it unimaginably awful for Ukrainians, both military and civilian, who have been on the receiving end of Russia's brutal and indiscriminate assault. But there have been some positive developments in the last few weeks and months. In particular, Ukraine has taken back around half of the territory that Russia occupied in the first weeks of the war. And Western countries and organizations have rallied round to provide weapons and ammunition and financial and humanitarian assistance. And looking to the future, we can see a road for Ukraine to joining the EU. The EU has given Ukraine the status of a candidate country. And by the end of this year, it should take a decision on opening membership negotiations. So this autumn may be a crucial period for Ukraine, both militarily and perhaps even more important for the long term politically. So joining me today to discuss the current situation and Ukraine's prospects is Hennady Maksak, the executive director of the Foreign Policy Council Ukrainian Prism and the head of the Civic Council under the Parliamentary Foreign Affairs Committee in Ukraine. So Hennady, welcome and thanks very much for sparing the time to talk to me. I know you've just come back from Ukraine. Where were you and what can you say about the mood in Ukraine after 18 months of war? Yeah, Ian, thank you so much for having me in your podcast. And you're right, I'm just back to Brussels from Chernigov, which is the central part of Ukraine, but it is the region which has the border with Russia and Belarus. So it's a tricky thing. And during my stay, I have parents there, I have relatives in the city with my wife. So basically, we spent some time with our close family. And it was a time when there was a hit of the theater by Russian cruise missile. So it's still like indication that war is ongoing and there is no safe place, even in territories which are not military important because we don't have big military units or big military enterprises in our city. But it, it was still a big, huge blow in the center of the city near the fair where a lot of people were just walking around. So we have a lot of casualties. Well, that's so terrible. It was really terrible for all of us. And basically, that very moment, I was in another place in Ukraine. But basically, I just could imagine I could be there at the place, as it said, time is my, is my son. So the war isn't going. But you asked about mood of Ukrainians. I think we could divide this question into two. The first one, there is like urgent sense of a bigger problem of insecurity, I would say in that way, for all Ukrainian citizens. And that just makes us think whether to spend our time in Ukraine or abroad, as many of our relatives and our friends are now trying to find their fortune in other places, in European Union, in Great Britain, in many other places. So I would say this is one how to survive because we have autumn. And remember, last autumn, there was a huge blow from Russia on our energy system. And basically, it was a big civilian 
catastrophe because many of us were hurt being in different cities, in different villages, in other places. So we, we got accustomed to some extent to the situation, but I think many of us instinctively sense that there might be a repetition of the situation. So it's like an urgent sense of insecurity. But from other hand, I just saw my fresh opinion poll of Ukrainians about how do we assess, do we need to give in to some negotiation pressure from our partners, or should we just stay on the position that all our territories should be liberated, and more than 90% in favor of the second option. So still, having all these inconveniences, all these insecurity issues and problems, we are still in favor of just fair resolution of this war. So basically, this is two parts of this story. Yeah, I think it's very understandable. We've all seen what's happened in the regions that have been occupied by Russia. And it's a point that I think those who put forward this idea of sort of swapping land for peace forget that, you know, it's not just about land, it's about the people who live in it and the way that they have been treated, which has been so abominable. So I can quite understand why it's so important to Ukrainians to to get back, not just territory, but to get back the populations that have suffered so much under Russian occupation over the last 18 months. So that's the mood in Ukraine. Now, obviously, on the external front, apart from all the the military developments, one of the key things that we're coming up to is the moment in the autumn when the European Commission will report on Ukraine's progress towards meeting the various benchmarks for moving on to the next stage on the road to membership. So, I mean, it'd be interesting for me to get your thoughts on the progress that's made and how confident people are feeling that Ukraine has done enough to ensure that the EU agrees to opening the negotiations. And perhaps just as a reminder for our listeners, the EU sets seven criteria for moving on to the next stage. That's first, the reform of the constitutional court. Second, the continuation of judicial reform. Third, steps on anti-corruption, including the head of the anti-corruption police. Fourth, anti-money laundering steps. Fifth, the implementation of the anti-oligarch law. Sixth, the harmonisation of audiovisual legislation with European legislation, which is about media plurality and that sort of thing. And seventh, changes in legislation on national minorities. And I think the last informal account by the Commission of how things were going suggested that progress was being made on a number of these, but that there was still some way to go before they were all fulfilled. But how does it look to you? Where do you think the main progress has been made and where do you think the main problems still remain? I would rather also divide into two parts my answer. The first one, this is prehistory, pre-war track of Ukraine on our European path and after February 2022. It would be fair to say that Ukraine has accomplished a number of commitments on our track to European integration prior to big war, as we say. But still some lingering problems remained. And you mentioned some of them in the seven recommendations from European Commission. So the most acute problem was with anti-corruption and the judicial system, which also somehow overlapped with our rule of law system and our model of administration in Ukraine. And since February 2022, it's my sincere assessment as an expert, a big leap ahead has been done because there was a political will. Let us just start from the moment that in the first days of full-scale aggression, there was a big 
informal meeting in office of president and there was discussion, debate, what to ask from our European partners, from the European Union. Weapons, financial support, some humanitarian support were on our radar. But some of colleagues that participated, they just indicated there is window of opportunity to start to just reshape our relations with the European Union. So political will was there from the very first days, and basically a lot of it has been done on this track, vis-a-vis uh, -vis anti-corruption track, vis-a-vis -vis judicial reform. And basically that's why uh, Commissioner Vargay mentioned in June that there are some progress on these steps. But I would rather also not be so optimistic because there are some benchmarks for us which are set by European institutions. And while they are set, there is also some changes from European side, some new commitments which Ukraine has to deliver on some new ideas. And I would rather say the process is ongoing incremental. We're still in the half of our journey to achieve all the implementation of the seven steps. But I have honest and sincere hope that in December 2022, European Council will adopt fair decision about open negotiation. We are aware of the fact that open negotiation is not the membership. It is only the start of a long, long negotiation process, but this is very important for Ukrainians. And you mentioned Ukrainians and how they estimate. I would say that Ukrainians cherish European integration dream. And as I said, it was in relation to our fight with Russia, 90% plus in favor of liberation of all the territory. But the same scores go to European track more than 90% for membership in the European Union. Because this is not only membership, this is like change of the civilization model for Ukraine. And basically it's something which matters for all of us. So I think this is, this is very important. So to, to cut long story short, we still have some steps to, to implement. But on each of every out of seven, we, we have some deliberations made from February 2022. Yeah. So let me just ask a follow-up question about the anti-corruption issue because a few months ago I think you were making good progress on the appointment of all the relevant officials and on some quite prominent cases being taken forward against people who were accused of corruption and so on. Now, a few days ago, the president announced that corruption in wartime was going to be treated as high treason, and that would take it out of the hands of the specialized anti-corruption investigators and prosecutors and so on, and hand it to the security service, the SBU. And there's been some worry in the West that actually the SBU is not professionally qualified to deal with corruption in the way that these specialized police prosecutors and courts are established specifically to deal with this issue. I mean, do you think that there is a danger that if you hand the anti-corruption dossier to the SBU, that actually it sounds as though you're making this a more serious crime, but in reality, you're making it less likely that people will be successfully prosecuted? Or have we misunderstood in the West? Uh, Ian, I would rather carefully assess Zelensky a political declarations uh, on the stage of declarations. If there are some legal steps implemented on this issue, then we could try to think about these interesting deliberations. But I would rather say it is irony because SBU is also a part of our reform story. 
SBU has to be reformed in order to just be in line with our NATO standards and our NATO commitments. So I think it's premature for us to think that this institution, this law enforcement body, capable of dealing with these issues. And from other hand, I would say that we have rather good track on anti-corruption. We have new appointments, we have new commissions for selections of top officials for anti-corruption bodies that were enforced just after February 22. But just overnight to change it for political reason, I think it is still not a good move for Zelensky's office. So I think it's rather it should be estimated or characterized as a political declaration. As, mm. as simple as that. So let's stay on the track we have on this anti-corruption recommendation we've made. But just to complement on anti-corruption, we still have some corrections from European side. From one hand, it's understandable movement because European Commission wants us to be more clear and transparent in this in this way because we know of situation with some Central European member states. We still like being member states, but they have a lot of problems with their rule of law and justice system. So I would say this is legitimate, legitimate ask or request from European side. But to change these recommendations in process, this is not a good sign. And basically, no. it was also communicated from European partners to our European partners. It's okay, let's, let's just agree that we do this part of our job. So this is something also to keep on our radar. And another point, civil society, anti-corruption society is very vocal in Ukraine. And we're trying with partners, our think tank is not part of this anti-corruption constellation, but our partners trying to press on different issues to advocate. And now there is a big civic plea to open e-declarations, electronic declarations of top officials, which is also part of our communication story with the European Union. So I think we are on good track on that. But I would say that at this moment, we have to separate political declarations and the steps we have to do under this track. Yeah, I mean, that's quite interesting. I mean, I'm glad you mentioned there the civil society organizations that are fighting against corruption, because I think they are an extremely impressive group. I've met some of them on their visits to London. And I think in many respects, Thanks to the efforts of civil society, Ukraine has managed to push ahead of some, well, not just Central and Eastern European countries, but even countries further west in Europe, you know, with some of the steps that you've taken, like the ProZoro public procurement system, which is very transparent and makes it much harder to indulge in the kinds of corruption that were quite common in the past. So I think there's been a lot of progress there. I want to go back to something that you said about the incredibly high level of support for European integration in Ukraine. And on the one hand, it's very understandable. On the other hand, it's also quite astonishing that it's at such a high level. But I wondered whether the disputes that Ukraine is involved with at the moment with Poland and some of its other neighbours over the export of grain, with Poland and other countries complaining that Ukrainian grain is distorting the market in their countries and getting the EU to impose restrictions on the export of Ukrainian grain. Is that damaging people's view of the EU? Are people seeing that as unfair treatment? My take on that, that Ukrainians are not deeply engaged in this kind of narrative, in this kind of debate about Poland's role, about Poland's not conducting very constructively towards Ukraine. So Poland, from other layers of our relations, is the staunchest partner when it comes to our security domain. 
Yeah, I mean, they've, they've provided a lot by way of military assistance. And yes, I can understand that. So yeah. I think that the positive effect overlaps all these negative trends which are now we're witnessing in our neighboring country. On expert level, we do see that Poland is approaching election style. And this is one of the very important issues on the agenda when it comes to conservative constituencies. So I think that it is for us, it is clear, but from other hand, it also poses a dilemma because we see that Poland just taking this position, it runs counter European legislation. This is yet another issue, another sign how to conduct for Ukraine, how to be involved in that. And I think this is a good track that we're trying to communicate with European institutions. We're trying to say, okay, colleagues, there is a dispute between our neighbors, and it's also part and parcel of our association agreement and the DCFTA, which is part of that. So let's decide contractually on that. And I think that some decisions, some ideas are there. Also, we understand that after elections in Poland, situation might differ. But at this moment, we just see is that there is such a problem. But Ukrainians, I would say, they still assess more positively Poland because basically they have done a huge, huge job for Ukraine. Yeah. Okay. That's a well-balanced answer, I think, and and a very fair one. So let's assume for a moment that the European Council at the end of the year does decide that the accession negotiations can open in the new year. I mean, obviously, a big part of the process is about the alignment of Ukrainian legislation with EU legislation. And that's a process that you've already started as part of the association agreement and the DCFTA. And I think you were describing to me before we started the recording that you have this kind of self-screening process for looking at the legislation that has to be passed. And I wondered, can you talk me through how does the parliamentary process work, especially in wartime? How do you get through this process of aligning Ukrainian legislation with European legislation in these circumstances? Very important footnote for this, Ian, that this self-screen, it was done by 80 public agencies, not only Parliament. So basically, they tried to look in their domains, in their portfolios, which of the European acts just are of the same competence. And they have assessed what part of expertise, what part of functions are already there in Ukrainian legislation, what has to be corrected, what has to be implemented as a new pieces of legislation. And I think it was a good start because this screening starts with negotiation, day number one. And we started, I mean, our authority started it in February 2023 after or just prior to council or summit between Ukraine and European Union. And it was our self-commitment to prepare ourselves more precisely and to understand what parts more problematic, to say in that way. And I would say that now we see the scope of, of these acts to be implemented, the scope of acts which are already there in Ukrainian legislation, legislation body, and which are just out of our agenda for these negotiations. And I would say this was a good track, but now there is a second part of this work. We have this assessment, and now there is a preparation work for national program, which will start with negotiation process. We already know, and we already saved the time for this, for this kind of screen done by European partners, and we know what to do and want to implement to in line with a key community. Right, right. But it's an enormous amount of legislation to pass. So how is the Verkhovna Rada functioning at the moment in conditions of war? 
Ironically to say, good news, they have continuous session all the time during the war. So basically, each day they can, can be summoned for a legislation process, for some committee meetings. So basically, all this is ongoing. And they have their own plans what to do under these seven steps. There is a priority line, let us put it this way. But afterwards, they have to implement all these legislation acts according to the clusters, according to the clauses of a key community. And basically, they are preparing themselves. At this point, there is institutional development or enforcement of the parliament, there is a special center to, to be created, which is to bring more expertise on legislation of European Union, because it's not a secret, but I would rather share with you this knowledge from Ukraine that we have a lot of facilitating projects and programs in Ukraine from European Union, from United States, from Great Britain, which are trying to make our reforms more comprehensive, more effective. But at the very time, these programs, they just trying to select the better personnel, the better expert to their staff. And this is a problem for government institutions because they have not so competitive salaries. And so uh, at this point, these programs are better equipped with people than, uh, than Ukrainian public agencies and public institutions. So this expertise enforcement is something we still face as a challenge. But there is a good track, as I said, in Parliament, there is a center for European expertise. And they were trying to assess each act they have vis-a-vis -vis the norms and compliance with European standards and community. So this is a good sign. But I would say they have a lot of plans. I mean, Parliament, they have a lot of plans, but they have priority. As I said, till October, they have something to say about those same recommendations, which are still in process of implementation. Yeah. I mean, I've always been extremely impressed by the people that I have met from the government as well, who are dealing with the European dossier, who seem very well prepared. But it is for any parliament, I think it would be a quite a taxing agenda, just the sheer volume. One question that I have to ask is about the elections, because in theory, this Rada's term of office finishes, I think, by November of this year. Mm -hmm. And as I understand, under conditions of martial law, it's impossible to hold elections. So does the Constitution just prolong the Rada at that point? Or what's the kind of democratic process, if any, that goes on beyond November? You mentioned very interestingly democratic process in wartime. This is something which is very complicated. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's very complicated in yeah. many countries, I think. So what I know from my discussion with parliamentarians, with people from Officer President and MFA, that there is still no talk about elections. It is out of the agenda because of the martial law, as you correctly mentioned. It is not like a norm of the constitution, as you rightly mentioned as well, but I would say that we will stick to the law norm about continuation of activities of RADA. And as I said, now it acts quite smoothly because there is ongoing session. It is not just interrupted or divided into different sessions. And this is something which is very important for Ukraine. If you have something to decide, you have some big issue to be resolved via parliamentary procedures. They could meet like in hours and to decide and to, to vote. And basically, this is why they have some complexity at the moment with traveling abroad. Maybe you heard about some conflicts, about some our MPs being caught in some hot places on the beaches, on the seaside. And I think this is uh, correctly, that if there is ongoing session, they have to be in Ukraine. Mm. So I think this is something we, we, we're trying to see. So elections, less probably, I would say. 
Right. Okay. Well, as you say, you know, they are continuing to work. That's important. Well, Hanadi, I think that's all we have time for today. I mean, it's been an extremely interesting discussion. And I think, you know, I'm impressed by the progress that has been made on integration with the EU. I hope that the Commission will be equally impressed. Fingers um, crossed. <laughs> yeah. And that you will get a good report and that come December, the European Council will indeed agree to launch the accession negotiations in the new year. So thank you very much for your time today. Very grateful to you. Thank you very much to the audience for listening to this podcast from the Centre for European Reform. If you've enjoyed it, please subscribe to the series on your preferred podcast platform and leave us good review. And thank you very much and goodbye. Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.